0: c-o-c-o-r-i-s dot com Now, let's hear from Mike The Bible teaches that justification is by faith But what is faith? That sounds like a simple question but um, very quickly gets complicated Some people would say that faith is a vague, nebulous concept For them, faith is sort of like a feeling Uh, you don't have to have facts. Uh, You just have to have some kind of an emotion, perhaps. As a matter of fact, those of that point of view might go so far as to even avoid facts and say that faith is the opposite of facts. They don't look at facts at all. If you have faith, according to that point of view, you don't need facts. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who would insist that faith demands facts, Uh, that demands at least evidence. They would even define faith as believing in evidence. It's hard-nosed. It uh, looks at the evidence and won't be exercised until evidence is produced. Now, that's just a sample to say that the question, what is faith, is not as simple as it sounds. So while we can say that justification is by faith, we have to then ask and answer the question, what is faith? Well, that's the question I'd like for us to grapple with a bit tonight. There are several ways that we could come at this. One is that we could look at the various words in the New Testament that's used for faith and define faith based on the meaning of those words. That would be a perfectly legitimate approach. Another way to come at the subject would be to find an illustration of faith and study it. Now that latter approach might not answer all of the questions about the nature and definition of faith, but it could be very helpful in giving us an understanding of the nature of faith. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul sets out to demonstrate that justification is by faith. By the time he gets to the end of chapter 3, he declares that very doctrine. In chapter 4, he delineates it. He demonstrates it, especially from the Old Testament. But before he finishes up with that subject, he gives us what I have chosen to call a model of faith. He holds up, as it were, an example, and says, in essence, this is what faith is like. And by looking at that model, that example, I think we can answer some of the questions concerning the nature of faith. So with that in mind, may I invite your attention to Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. The apostle Paul says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It should be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Obviously, from just reading these verses in the latter part of Romans 4, Abraham is the example of, that I had in mind a moment ago. Abraham is Paul's model of faith. Now, the Senate structure in this part of the book of Romans can be rather complex, but the truth of what is being taught is relatively simple. It seems to me that in this passage, Paul is making something like three propositions concerning Abraham's faith, or to put that same thing another way, As we move through these verses, I'd like to point out three characteristics of of Abraham's faith. And in so doing, I think it will focus on the essence of faith. For example, Paul begins this passage in the first couple of verses, verses 17 and 18, by simply telling us that Abraham's faith was in the promise of, and in the power of God. The nature of this kind of faith that brought Abraham justification is that it was faith in God's promise and God's power. Now look at those two verses and I'll show you how I arrived at that. Actually, there's a sense in which verse 17 is connected with verse 16, but um, verse 16 is connected to the first part of Romans 4 and in this uh, part of the passage, Paul sort of fades into the example. So we're going to pick it up there. He simply says that uh, it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And then Paul says of Abraham, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. Now, the first part of verse 17 that says, as it is written, is a quotation from Genesis 17, verse 5. That is, God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, I am going to make you a father of many nations. Now, Paul says, in the presence of him whom he believed. So put together the first uh, fact. That is, that uh, God made Abraham a promise. And the second fact, that Abraham believed God. In other words, very simply put, this is telling us that the nature of Abraham's faith was that he believed a promise God had made to him, simply that he would be the father of many nations. But there is more, he adds in verse 17, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, the first part of verse 17 is saying that Abraham believed God's promise. The second part of verse 17 is saying that Abraham believed God's power, that he not only believed that God made this promise, but that God was able to perform the promise he had made the way he states it, is that God gives life to the dead. Now, that sounds like resurrection. But as we will see very shortly, especially from verse 19, he is not talking about raising dead people. He's talking about the deadness of his own body in terms of producing children because he was past childbearing age. And for that matter, so was his wife. You see, all of this is connected to that quotation in Genesis 17, verse 5, that says, I will make you the father of many nations. The promise God had given to Abraham is that he would bear children. Now, he was past childbearing age, but nevertheless, he believed God's word, his promise, and he believed God had the power to do that, even if that meant as Paul says on the latter part of verse 17, if he had to call into existence something that wasn't in existence. God has that kind of power, not just resurrection power, but creative power. And that's the object of Abraham's faith. If God said it, he's God. And of course, he can do it. So he says in verse 18, who contrary to hope, That is, he was past childbearing age, in hope, literally in expectation of God fulfilling his promise and having the power to do it. Believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, all of those phrases and clauses and statements in verses 17 and 18 are simply saying this, God gave Abraham a promise, you'll bear children. Abraham believed that promise and that meant he believed that God had the power to fulfill that promise. You know what all this boils down to? What it really all boils down to is how big is your God? So if God says, you'll bear children, when your wife is past menopause, then if he wants to do that, he can do it, right? I mean, if he has the power to create, the latter part of verse 17 says, call into existence that which didn't exist. If he has the power by the spoken word to create the world, then he could surely get a gal pregnant if he wanted to, right? I mean, that's putting it kind of crass, but that's, That's about what it amounts to, right? Right. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the outstanding Bible expositors of the 20th century, tells of the time when he went back to Princeton to preach in chapel. One of his professors was there, a fellow named Robert Dick Wilson. Now, Robert Dick Wilson has a reputation far and wide of being an extremely brilliant fellow. He was a Barnhouse's Hebrew professor. And as I recall, it seems to me I heard once that it was Dr. Wilson who could uh, handle about 30 languages. He was in, an incredibly brilliant man and a defender of the faith. At any rate, when Dr. Barnhouse got done speaking, uh, Dr. Wilson went up to him and said, uh, uh, if you come back to chapel again, uh, I will not come to hear you speak. And uh, you can imagine Dr. Barnhouse was a little taken back by that. And Dr. Wilson said, I only come to hear my boys one time. And uh, what I want to know is uh, if they're a big godder or a little godder. And Dr. Barnhouse said, "Uh, would you mind explaining that? And he said, "Uh, sure. He said, "Um, uh, some men that go through here have a big god. And... uh, Uh, I know when I hear them preach whether they got a big God or not. If they have a big God, I call them big Godders. And some other men who come back here have little gods, and I call them little Godders. And he said, you got a big Godder. God's going to bless your ministry, so I don't have to worry about you, and I'll not come back. (laughs) Dr. Barnhouse uh, later said, men always are in difficulty with their faith, because their God is too small." Now, that's what this passage is teaching. Abraham had faith in a big God. He believed that God made a promise and that he was powerful enough to bring it to pass. Now, that's the issue. That's the nature of Abraham's faith. Now, in order to... I think we'd say today, Uh, highlight that in yellow. You know when you read a book and you take a yellow marker and you highlight things you read? In In order to highlight this, uh, to print it in bold relief, Paul tells us a second thing about Abraham's faith. Beginning in verse 19, he lets us know in no uncertain terms that what Abraham did not do was... Look at the human possibilities. So in verses 17 and 18, he's telling us that Abraham's faith was in a powerful God who made a promise and had the power to fulfill it. Now he tells us that Abraham's faith was not in human possibilities. Look at verse 19, and I'll show you what I mean. Paul says concerning Abraham, and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to To God. Now, in order to understand this, you have got to remember that the word dead in this passage is not talking about dead like you see a dead person in a funeral home. It's talking about the deadness of the reproductive organs in Abraham and Sarah in terms of producing children. I mean, just think about this story for a moment. God told Abraham. He was going to have children when he was way past childbearing age. And so was Sarah. I mean, that was an impossible situation. Paul points out that at this point he was 100 years old. And Sarah wasn't too far behind him. Notice Paul tactfully doesn't give her age. (laughs) According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the oldest living woman today who's had a child was a 57-year-old lady who in 1956, in the month of October, in Glendale, California, gave birth to a baby. All the 57-year-olds and younger, looked nervous when I said that. (laughs) I'm making the point that Abraham and Sarah were a lot older than 40, and that would be old for having children. And the oldest we can document in modern times apparently is 57. Incredible. And she was a lot older than that. But now what Paul is saying is he did not look at the human possibilities. So, he says in verse 19, he was not weak in faith. He did not consider his own body. He says he didn't consider Sarah's either. Verse 20, and he did not waver at the promise of God. So, he was not weak and he did not waver. The word waver literally means to be divided in your mind or to hesitate. So what he's saying is, Abraham did not look at uh, the human situation, his body and the body of his wife, and then start doubting and wavering. And I think I need to clarify that I do not believe that this means that he never entertained a doubt. Uh, That's not quite What's here. And what's critical in this regard is the word translated waiver in verse 20. He's not saying that a doubt never passed through his mind. Uh, I don't think that uh, faith means that you can never have a doubt of any kind. Remember the fellow uh, that said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief? Uh, faith uh, very often has a little doubt uh, that comes along with it. And so it's not that, uh, uh, that he never had any doubts at all. I'm sure, (laughs) looking at the situation, he thought, oh boy, (laughs) you sure you know what you're doing? Uh, But what he did not do is take that spark of a doubt and fan it until it became a flame and a bonfire and rage out of control. He did not say, I'm going to entertain the doubt instead of entertain the faith. Rather, though those doubts may have come, and I'm sure they probably did, he pushed them aside, and so the Bible tells us in verse 21, being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. He believed God, he was strong in faith, and therefore, Paul says, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, he was strong in faith, verse 20 being fully convinced that God had made a promise and that God was able to perform it. Matter of fact, if you've got a pen, you might ought to just underline those two words. I think they sum up this passage, and they they, they are in essence what the whole passage is saying concerning the nature of Abraham's faith. First, it was in God's promise, and secondly, it was in the fact that God had the power to fulfill his promise. That is the kind of faith he had. And then he says, therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, that, of course, is the point Paul is making in this section of the book of Romans. In the book of Genesis, uh, God said, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed that promise By the way, that promise, including the coming of a Messiah, you understand, and because uh, among the other things, giving you uh, descendants as uh, numerous as the stars of the heavens is and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, so that promise included uh, the coming of a Messiah. But Abraham believed that promise and he believed that God had the power to perform it and Genesis says it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, we are being told that justification is by faith. It's faith in a promise that God has made to us, and it's faith in a God who has the power to fulfill that promise. The promise that God has made to us is that he will save all those who trust his Son. He tells us that Jesus Christ died to pay for our sin, that Jesus Christ was miraculously, supernaturally raised from the dead and that he will forgive us, or to use Paul's word justify, declare us righteous based on the fact that Christ died and that Christ arose from the dead. So, faith that justifies is faith in the promise of a powerful God. Now, that's what Paul is saying in this passage. But in order to communicate that, he's using Abraham as the illustration and saying, Abraham believed the promise and power of God and he did not look at human possibilities. He kept his eye on the promise and he didn't waver. He didn't look to the side. He didn't look to the human possibilities. He kept his eye on the target, and he trusted God. I didn't exactly grow up on a farm, though I once passed at a church in a rural area and have spent a little time in the country. I've never really ridden a tractor, never plowed a field, but I've talked to a few farmers here and there, and I've had them describe to me what it's like to plow a straight row. Any of you ever had that experience? Did you ever, all you city slickers look like you never sat on a tractor in your life? Anyway, uh, I've had them say to me things like, and I've read accounts of them saying things like, if you look at the row you've plowed, uh, the tendency will be to waver. Uh, If you look back subconsciously your hand, no matter how hard you try to keep it on the steering wheel straight, It'll 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 move and you'll slightly go off and you'll you'll waver. But if you get a fixed point while you're plowing, and uh, a tree or a barn or some other building, and you just keep the tractor headed straight for that point, you'll plow a straight line. Some of you farmers are shaking your head. Yes. All right. Uh, that's sort of what Paul is saying about Abraham. He he he, he didn't look to the side at the human possibilities. He didn't look back. He didn't look up. He looked at the fixed promise that God had given him, and he plowed straight without wavering off the course. Now, that's the nature of faith. It looks at the promise and the power of God. The third thing Paul says in this passage is very simply that Abraham's faith was a model faith. He says in verse 23, Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also it should be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, all he's saying is that um, God instructed Moses to write that story about Abraham, but... That wasn't so that we could uh, somehow glorify Abraham. That wasn't to honor him or util- utilize him. Rather, all that was written for us, he says in verse twenty-three, uh, verse twenty-four, but also for us, so that Abraham—and that's the point I'm making from this passage—is the model, the example we are to emulate. Him. Now, Paul, so that we don't miss it, zeroes in on how he would uh, make the parallel between Abraham's faith and our faith. And he says, It should be imputed to us who believed in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, there's one little thing in these verses I need to explain, and then I'll tell you what is the point of the passage. Um, for the sake of you who are astute observers of the biblical text, let me focus your attention for a moment on the little phrase in verse 25, because of our justification. There's a technical little point here in a minute. Some of you will appreciate and some of you won't, but uh, just in passing, let me point out that there's a huge debate over how to translate this little word because. Was Jesus raised because we were justified, meaning by his death, or was Jesus raised, and then we would have to translate this, on account of our justification, meaning that uh, his resurrection had to take place in order for us to be justified. And uh, some of you are familiar with this debate, and it goes back and forth between scholars Just for the record, I have concluded that um, he is really saying in this passage, and I think it is correctly translated in the New King James, that Jesus Christ was raised because of our justification. And I am driven to that because in chapter 5, he later says that we were justified by his blood. That's chapter 5, verse 9. So that uh, if our justification is based on the death of Christ, as this book and several other passages in the New Testament indicates, then I think he was raised because of our justification. So just as uh, he was delivered up, verse 25, because of our sin, he was raised up because of our justification but be all that as it may. That little technicality aside for a second. The point Paul is making is that just as Abraham had faith in a faithful, powerful God, so we have faith in a powerful God. So verse 24 says, It shall be imputed to us who believed in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And that statement seems to be bridging the gap between Abraham's faith and our faith. Abraham did not just look at the human situation. He looked at the promise of God and said, I believe God has the power to keep that promise. He did not just look at his wife's body and say she's past childbearing age. He didn't just look at his own body and said this old body hasn't got the ability to produce children anymore. He looked at the promise of God and said, "God has the power to fulfill that promise." He did not just look at his wife's body and say she's past childbearing age. He didn't just look at his own body and said this old body hasn't got the ability to produce children anymore. He looked at the promise of God and said, God has the power to fulfill that promise. In a very similar fashion, those who are forgiven of their sins, those who are justified in the sight of God, that is declared righteous, are those who do not look at their situation. And see how hopeless and helpless it is Rather, they look at the promise of God that he will forgive all those who trust in his son. And they believe that Jesus Christ died for sin and they believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so they trust in a promise that God has made and in the fact that God has the power to fulfill that promise. So... This passage is simply saying that the model of faith is Abraham who believed in the promise and in the power of God to fulfill that promise. Or to put it simply, faith is believing in a God of resurrection power. That statement sort of sums it up real nicely. Abraham believed that God Would raise out of his dead body a live living son. And we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that God had the power to raise him from the dead. He was raised because of our justification in his death on the cross. And thus, our faith, like Abraham's faith, is in a God who made a promise and in a God who had the power to fulfill that promise. Now, let me talk about this for a moment in relationship to the way people think about faith today. I began a few moments ago by saying that some people think that faith is a feeling. Well, let me assure you that faith is not a feeling. It is not believing some fanciful, fictional fairy tale. Faith is not avoiding facts. Please hear me. I think this is commonly, popularly misunderstood, and it's critical. Faith is not avoiding facts. i talk to people every once in a while who want to say, I don't believe in faith, I believe in facts, as if the two are somehow contradictory or diametrically opposed to each other. They are not, I assure you. I think I would say to that kind of a person that faith doesn't dodge facts. It faces facts. I mean, it is hard-nosed. It does look at hard realities. Abraham wasn't stupid. He knew he was past childbearing age. And he faced that fact very squarely. He wasn't kidding himself. He knew that humanly speaking, it was impossible. But you see, my gripe with the people who say they believe in facts and not faith is that in my opinion, their problem is they are not considering all the facts. You see, when you say, I, I believe in facts, what you really mean when you contrast that to faith is you believe in the facts you can see. But maybe there are facts you don't see that doesn't mean they aren't facts matter of fact sometimes the facts you don't see can be just as uh, real and more so as the ones you do I hope you have learned not to trust just everything you see or hear right sometimes the reality is not what you think you see Or here. And that's the point. Please hear me. The kind of faith that Abraham had and the kind of faith God invites us to have is faith in him. And that's faith in all the facts. Matter of fact, uh, (laughs) just last week, I was. uh, In talking to someone who uh, didn't exactly understand the Christian faith from a biblical point of view, it was in a business context, not in a theological context, but it was obvious that I was a pastor and uh, this person was uh, in the business world, and um, I was being asked to explain uh, what our church was like and believed. And. uh, what I chose to say was something like this. Um, there, there are two kinds of churches. Um, forget the tag or the sh- that they put on their shingle out front. That, that's not the issue. Sort of like politics. Uh, uh, some uh, politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or Socialists or uh, Independents or whatever, are liberal. And some politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or whatever, are conservative. Now, in denominations and in theology, it's very similar to that. Uh, Some uh, theologians are liberal. They start out with a presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural. So when they come to the Bible and it says God parted the Red Sea, uh, they don't believe that because they don't believe anything supernatural can happen. Or when some of them come to the fact that jesus was raised from the dead they don't believe that either because they just started out with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural on the other hand conservatives say we just take the book at face value if the book says that uh, there was a god who created the world uh, that makes sense that's not stupid i mean some put it here right sure that's reasonable Now, if you start with that presupposition, then everything else makes sense. I'm going to sit around and defend whether or not God parted the Red Sea and they walked across dry shod. That's not even a problem. I mean, think, if he's powerful enough to create the world, he's certainly powerful enough to part some little river somewhere. And if you'll pardon my bluntness, Make some woman that's 90 years old or better pregnant. That's no big deal. If he could speak a word and spin the worlds into space, he could speak a world and some dead womb could bear a child. Does that make any sense to you? Makes tons of sense to me. So some people say, I'm going to look just at the fact I can see she's past childbearing age. That's a fact, but it's not all the facts. There's another fact, and that is there's a powerful God in heaven who created man, who created woman, and who creates children. Now, that's faith. It's believing facts. And in the case of saving faith, it's believing the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And if there's a God who created the world, bringing Christ back from the dead is no problem at all. Just no problem. So that's the nature of faith. It believes the promises of God. It believes that God has the power to fulfill those promises it is trusting a God of resurrection power. So I guess the issue is what set of facts are you looking at? The right set or the wrong set where's your focus? What have you fixed your faith on? Because everybody is trusting something they're either trusting their own judgment of their perception of reality. Are they are trusting God's word and God's promise? As for me, I choose to trust Him, because I long ago learned better than to trust me. A number of years ago, there was a preacher in Boston named A. C. Dixon, rather famous Bible teacher. He tells the tale of a time when his church needed $2,000. Now, this was in a day when $2,000 was a lot of money. Still is for some of us, but uh, back in those days, it was a lot, a lot of money. In the deacons' meeting that week, uh, they decided to pray about this matter, and one deacon said, God is going to give it to us next Sunday when we receive the offering. Just tell the people... And God is going to do it. The next Sunday, it rained. And so one of the men on the deacon board came and said, we, we ought not take the offering this week. Uh, there aren't going to be enough people here. Let's do it next week. And the deacon who was so insistent that God was going to supply said, no, we agreed, we're going to do it this Sunday, let's do it this Sunday. So they received the offering, and it was for $2,600. Now the deacon who said God was going to supply the money then said, I didn't trust the weather. I trusted God. Now that's what I'm telling you. Biblical faith. Is faith in a God who sent his son to die for our sins and then raised his son from the dead. If you trust that God that way, he says he'll give you heaven as a gift. You'll be justified by faith. Let's pray. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed. But before I do, let me ask you to pray. I often do this. Uh, You're here tonight, and you do not know for certain that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to heaven. Then just before I pray, I'm going to invite you to pray with your head bowed, this is between you and the Lord. Then just say, God... I admit to you that I've sinned against you. Go ahead. You don't have to list all your sins. You've probably forgotten most of them anyway. But, but he, he knows what they are. You just admit that you've sinned. Tell him that. And then you need to say, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sin and arose from the dead. you believe that? Sure, you do. Good. Then tell God that. That's the issue. And then tell God, you want to trust Jesus Christ to save you. Right now, right where you sit. Just say, God, save me right now. I want to trust Christ to save me right now. I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed. And most of you have seen me do this time and time and time again. So, all I'm going to ask you to do tonight, but if you were to say, Pastor, I just did that. I just told God I wanted to trust Christ. Would you slip your hand up? Just slip it up and then just slip it right back down. Say, Pastor, I want you to know I just told God I wanted to trust Christ. Anyone? All right, good. If you have any questions about anything I've said tonight, come see me. Be delighted to talk with you afterward. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your son, raising him from the dead, And thank you for this illustration from the life of Abraham. It lets us know that we need to get our focus off of human circumstances and onto you and your promises and your faithfulness and your power. Thank you, our Father, for saving us through your power and the death of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.